0: In this episode, I spoke with MSNBC's Chris Matthews and had an enlightening, engaging conversation about key issues that continue to plague our nation and our communities, from economic opportunities to criminal justice, national security, and the public's view toward the increasing racial and political polarization of America. This is the first in an ongoing series of discussions that I will have throughout the year that we are calling Conversations with America.
1: You know, we have a lot of church folks in here. Let us say amen. All right. (laughs) When I think of the book of Proverbs, it talks about being in the midst of wise counsel. Today, we're going to hear from two wise men with Conversations with America. And I want to bring first my friend, Chris Matthews let's give him a big round of applause and you know I thank Chris because Chris is very very busy and at this time without further ado I would like to bring to you the senior pastor of the Potter's House in Dallas Texas Bishop T.D. Jakes my two friends April, thank you, April. Everybody,
2: hear me? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is an honor, Bishop. Thank
0: you. It's a real pleasure. So,
2: you've uh, conducted this national survey now the second year. So you have what we call a time series. You can look and see how things are changing, going up, going down. And I and I want the audience. I'll I'll watch your faces. And at some point, we're going to bring in questions because I think everybody's going to have a reaction to some of these numbers uh, because we love to poll ourselves in this country. We love to know what we're all thinking. And especially how people are thinking differently. we like to figure that one out, too. So why don't we start? We have an hour to get it all done. And look at this number here. Forty-six percent in the United States say we're more racially polarized than in our parents' generation. Now, that's 20 years ago, roughly. So 20 years ago would be the 90s. Eleven points higher, the poll is showing, than we thought this a year ago. And a third say it's going to get worse in the next five years. So this is a projection of the future which doesn't look good, what do you think it's about?
0: You know, I think it's about a lot of things. First of all, I think it's about the images that are plastered on the screen in front of people where they have a greater awareness of what's going on in the community. I also think that it's a a lot of pressure that's really being imposed upon different people groups, and people are telling us how we feel. It certainly doesn't help the election and the climate that we're in right now. It lends itself to the frustration of blacks and whites and browns looking at the same thing from a different perspective.
2: You know, I look at it I'll have a comment occasionally like this one. I, uh, I, I, I'm white, and I think about how my life is. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody's watching
0: <laughs> television. <laughs>
2: uh, we that, Chris. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like the man from Glad, you know, I'm so white. Uh, remember that commercial? <laughs> anyway, uh, here's the way I try to look at it I, I try to look on the bright side, and I go, look. The first family is African-American. An interesting kind of African-American is he comes from a mixed background of his father's from African, uh, his mother's white and from Kansas and all. So that's kind of interesting and, and she's classic African-American, the inner migration uh, to Chicago, the whole thing, she sort of fits the mold. And yet we have a first family, first one ever that's not white and, and I think 70 to 80% of the country completely, if not celebrates that, totally accepts that. 20% done. So I I don't think it's, what's your reaction if you buy those numbers? Here it says 46, they're worse than we were. Well, 20 years ago,
0: I don't think Barack Obama would have won the election. Well, I don't think think that's just about race. I think it's a misunderstanding because President Obama wouldn't have been President Obama if the preponderance of the American people had not elected him to be so. The the reality, though, is that enthusiasm and uh, positivity that was stimulated eight years ago erodes quickly because people have an overextension of an ideology that here's my hero, he's going to fix everything in a week when in fact the problems were deeply complicated and very complex, and you could have stopped us from falling to the degree that we would have fallen uh, economically and still not get the perks and the props that are due you. Then when you add to that the political intentions of people constantly attacking you all the time, I I, I think that it really uh, lends itself to being a much more complex problem.
2: He's up now, by the way.
0: Yeah, I see he is. He's
2: in the 50s now, which for anybody today Mm -hmm. being in the 50s is pretty good. Clinton, of course. That guy could walk on water politically. I mean, uh, he was in the mid 60s after Monica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love the 5% back then that said they like him more now after the, the thing hit the story. And let me ask you about the political thing. This is no surprise 57% more say the United States is more politically polarized, seven points higher than when you surveyed last year, Bishop. And uh, 45% say it's going to get worse. Are we getting to be more left wingers and right wingers? And nobody in between? Is
0: that where I'm When I looked at those numbers, they they did not surprise me because those numbers are taken, the sample is taken in the middle of a fight, which forces the viewer to have to choose a side. And oddly enough, it's not even a fight about things that are important. Many times the issues have been sacrificed over a trivia. But yet it divides the nation because the nation has a tendency. Exactly. All sorts of things. uh, Rather than really looking at the complex problems that we face in the country. But 79% of the people in America say that it is worsening the division that is already deep down inside it. And, and I would say that based on the numbers that we saw, it is deeper than Democrat to Republican. I think within each party, there are groups, subgroups that are oh, breaking wow. apart into a nameless quadrum of people where it's not just are you Democrat or Republican, are you conservative or liberal, but they have many factions within that group. So we got fighting coming, not just the two people we expected to get in the ring but then within those subgroups of, of those divisions there are many many subsets of people that, that are fighting as well
2: you know to make your point there's a new group called secular evangelicals <laughs>
0: figure <laughs> exactly. that one out yeah. anyway, yeah. Interesting. I
2: guess they're par- I'm guess i told that they're the children of evangelicals the,
0: the, what, what I, as we begin to pour through this data one of the things that became paramount to me is that we're becoming increasingly tribal at a time that we need to be increasingly united. And that tribalistic propensity is not just based by race, it's based by age. When you go through the data, and I really hope that you do, it's based by a whole lot of things, ideologies uh, that have divided us into tribes and groups at a time that we have enemies and problems and issues. And I think these numbers will really help us to better understand those subsets of people and how do we deal with that and how, how do we bring people back together again.
2: What do you make of the fact that I've got... One grand, I've got one uh, daughter-in-law and two sons and a daughter, so four voters, and they're in their 20s or early 30s, and three out of the four are Bernie people. (laughs) And that fits the sort of the classic today. Bernie Sanders is getting the young people.
0: Our our numbers kind of reflected that, too, that there was divides within the same family. We talk about divides within the same race. There are divides in the same family because a lot of times the numbers will show that generationally we have different expectations. Uh, This generation is not really embracing institutional ideologies of any kind. And that's not unusual for young people. But I also think it speaks to a deeper frustration that institutions have not been at their best In the young people's lifetime. So sometimes it is not about who they are voting for. It is what they are voting against.
2: Well, I would think that's in my family. I've got three people on the left as my kids, Mm -hmm. an in-law kid. And then I've got three brothers for Trump. (laughs) Right. And one brother who's my bellwether. I always wait because he's always right. He made one mistake in his life. He always voted for the winner. So I always wait to hear from him at the end. He didn't like Trump. Oh, really? No, he doesn't like Trump, so I'm waiting to hear from him. Uh, let's talk about the next group. Uh, let's talk about uh, economics. And uh, here we go. 58% say, and this is always interesting because the unemployment rate's down to 4.7 in mm-hmm. this last number, and yet only th- 28,000 new jobs instead of the usual 200,000 new jobs. Exactly. And then the weird thing happens on the stock market The minute the, the minute the – people in the stock market notice things, they go, oh great, unemployment's up, <laughs> uh, therefore the Fed will not raise rates, mm-hmm. and therefore my stock will be worth more, or something, right? Yeah, that well. Weird but... boom, that's weird, sick thing in our economy where when it looks bad for the economy, the Fed means lower interest rates, which means people with money put it in the stock market and make more money.
0: Right. <laughs> well, oddly enough, when you look at 58 percent thinking that the economy is headed in the wrong direction, you can't really use unemployment rate as a barometer because many, many people are underemployed. It is not the fact that they don't have a job, but they don't have a job making the kind of money that they used to make. Okay. When you look at many women are single-parent heads of households, particularly in minority communities, but not exclusively so, you only feel about the economy whether it is going well or bad based on how well you are doing yeah. because if you are not doing well to you the economy is not doing well so so we'll, these numbers are reflective of 58% of our country is not seeing recovery it has not trickled down to the level that it really needs to trickle down and consequently they think that well, it's isn't going in scary the wrong direction.
2: we're getting at the end of this recovery
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know it's been going on since Obama got in mm-hmm. since, well, at least since 2010 the economy's been getting a little better. You know, the business cycle, that's the scary part. If you don't catch the train the first time through, you may not catch it at all. Right. And I was wondering, remember, by the way, Harry Truman, the president, had this great line. He said, if the guy next door is out of work, it's a recession. If you're out of work, it's a depression. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's Absolutely. To make your point. You know, one of the things, Chris, uh, I'm working on mm-hmm. a book now called A Suck and Win, and we're dealing with people who are having to... Reimagine themselves sometimes in the middle of their lives, or sometimes they're reimagining themselves having come out of college, thought it was going to be one way, and can't get a job, and they move back in with their parents. It deals with entrepreneurship and things like that. We as a country have to get back to being creative again. We have to start producing again. We have become proficient at consuming. We are consuming faster than we are creating. When we were creating things, we had industry, we had jobs, we had opportunities, we had a middle class. But today, if we are only proficient at consuming, yeah. that doesn't create much of a marketplace for jobs.
2: Yeah. What do you What do you make of this? This is a, This is the one you're talking about here. Fifty one percent say it's worse than their parents' generation. Absolutely. Well, the '90s were a boom time.
0: Yeah in many, many ways. And the other thing you have to realize, I'm from West Virginia. OK, so we had the coal mines. We had Union Carbide. We had in Pennsylvania, we had Pittsburgh Steel. We had in Detroit, we had the burgeoning, blowing up explosion of uh, Lincoln Mercury and Ford and all of that, which created a middle class. When those jobs went away or got farmed overseas or technology took over, if you couldn't go up into technology, you went down into poverty. So some of the discontentment that these numbers reflect, I believe, are a direct result of people who were once doing well falling back into a frustrating place of seeing a digression rather than a progression.
2: Let's talk about this other one, about 57% say we do not have the same economic opportunities. You know, when I graduated from college, I went to Holy Cross up in Massachusetts. They would have tables set up, card tables set up outside the campus, on the campus, and they would have recruiters there. Are they, they
0: still do that? I don't well, know. No, there's, there are they were still people. For, they
2: were trying to hire people. They would talk you into, go work for this bank. It'll give you a, a six-month program, and you'll be making 15,000 a year, which was a hell of a lot
0: of money then. There are still people waiting on you when you get out of college now, and they are not offering you a job in this debt. Okay, so if you went to school imagining what you were going to be when you got out and you walk out the door and there is not the reception that you described in your generation today, the people waiting outside the door are saying, do you know how much money you owe me and what interest rate is that going to be paid at? And all of a sudden you didn't get the job you imagined and you got the debt you didn't imagine and those numbers reflect that.
2: And and there's Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Exactly. He's waiting there to tell you how he's going to fix that.
0: I think that some of the voices in this election are really reverberating from the frustration of the American people whose voices could not be heard. And the reason we did this in the first place was to give a voice to the voiceless, to create an opportunity to hear from people who cannot be interviewed by Chris Matthews, to create an opportunity for their concerns to be heard.
2: Let's talk about the old gap we're used to in unemployment and everything is, is, is black, white. 41% say the economic gap is growing between whites and women. Is that true? I believe it. Is that about the middle class versus the working, or working versus working, or middle versus middle? Or is that about the preponderance of the word billionaire, which words we never heard (laughs) growing up? There were no billionaires. There's this exponential wealth today that you can't even explain how somebody makes billions. I don't know how you get a million to a billion. That's a thousand million. These guys, I, I said, why don't they just retire? I mean, <laughs> I, what do you want? And they got to argue whether, whether Donald Trump has 11 billion, well, we might have only five or six.
0: I yeah, that it, means, that it's means for the rest locked. of your life, you can go
2: anywhere you want in the world, do anything you want to do, buy anything you want to do. What else you want to do? I mean, what, but anyway, this question of the gap, between black and white, is that evident
0: to you? I think it is evident, and I think it's evident in a lot it's of ways. Growing. It's growing, and it's growing wider. If, but the
2: out-of-work white classic Trump voter today is a guy who lives in a town, maybe the Burbs of Detroit or Philly, and, and he's, he used to work, his father did, his uncle did at a Boeing or at a Heinz plant, like, and this is where I grew up. I mean, mm-hmm. My grandfather took a two subway stop to work at a really good job, mm-hmm. and he came home in the night shift, and, and then my uncle Charlie worked at another one of these places, a bud plant. These were real men's jobs.
0: Right, right. right.
2: Semi-skilled, work hard, come home sweaty, have a beer, regular guy's jobs. These jobs, now you have poor African-American kids with no business opportunity except the drug deals. Mm-hmm, exactly. And there's nothing going on in those neighborhoods except some tennis courts down by the river now.
0: There the, used to the, be factories. Well, so I came I, from I a know, factory that, world, too. I mean, I'm West Virginia, we were factories. You could smell it when you moved into the state. Yeah. But the reality of the matter is opportunities are a result of relationships. If you're going to get a job today, you have to know somebody who knows somebody. It's yeah. a hookup world today. And, and it's you see everybody nod down there. Been that. It's it, it, very much relationships. So if you've
2: got an uncle in the union, you get in the union.
0: Well, that, and here's exactly, and here is the issue whites have relationships with people who make decisions more readily than African-Americans. That's
2: why you need affirmative action.
0: Okay, that's why we need affirmative action. That's why we need to force some dialogue about making sure that the playing field is level for all people, not just black people, brown people, poor white people also don't have the relationships. Poverty doesn't lend itself to relationships that are empowering. Consequently, people get stuck because you cannot ask who you cannot talk to. So when you look at that, this is as much about relationship as it is about race. And geographic segregation adds to that. Geographic segregation adds to that. And then the propensity that we have within ourselves to hire people that we like. And then furthermore, we tend to like people that reflect the familiar to us. You don't have to be a bigot to have a bias.
2: I'm so with you. You know, I always tell people looking for a job, I say, look... Whenever somebody says they're quitting, they give, like, two weeks' notice. They don't give a lot of notice these days. <laughs> right. Loyalty ain't big. That means two weeks that window's open. Mm-hmm. So if you're the boss, you look around. Who's around? Who's up for a promotion? Who's been asking for a job? If you're not in that two-week window, you're gone. You're not right. in business. So you've got to keep knocking on door after door, constantly going back every two, and hoping that you'll be mentioned on that list. Right. And if you're, you're right, once you're in, then you've got a cousin who's somewhere. To buy or buy, and are and. You know, somebody you met at a party or, you
0: know, you're right, the buzz. Yeah, and Chris, how many bosses know beggars? <clears throat> how many beggars no bosses? We are locked out as much economically as we are by race, and we tend to hire people that we know. Joe, who's working over in accounting, his son is looking for a job. Well, Joe, who's working in accounting, is a reflection of the boss himself, and he looks like the boss, and guess what? He gets a job. Yeah. Because Willie, who cleans up the building at night, who cleaned up the building so his son could go to college, is also looking for a job for his son, who also has a degree, but he works the night shift, and he dare not walk up on the CEO crap, as he comes in in, in the morning. Talking. I think that's how we, by talking. That's exactly why I did conversation with America. We cannot change what we don't communicate about. America's like a bad marriage. Yes. It's like a really bad marriage where everybody's trying to be polite, but nobody really gets down to the communication that's necessary to heal it again. And the man thinks he knows what the woman ought to do and the woman knows what the man ought to do because you make assumptions about other people without ever talking to the people you make assumptions about. It's like a really bad marriage.
2: So what's better, fighting or silent? (laughs) sounds like silence
0: worse my wife is not here so i can answer that anyway i want yeah what is the answer i think that the silence is killing us i think that the silence is killing us and quite frankly i think the other thing that's killing us is that we learn about each other from people we know in other words women learn about men by talking to other women so they get the advice of women how to handle men whites get the opinion about what it's like to be black from listening at white commentators tell them about black people they really don't talk to black people black people don't talk to enough Did white people you ever get people. a
2: sense watching a sitcom that when an african-american character is talking that a white guy wrote the lines
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes i do sometimes <laughs>
2: I just wonder, is that really that guy talking from his background or is that somebody else's background talking? You, you, He's got the talent to be the actor, but he didn't think of this line.
0: You don't get to write the it's lines you, you speak. But the other thing, I think, I don't want to start with talking. I had a check in my heart to say this. It isn't just about talking, America. It's also about listening. <laughs> Because one of the things that, are in, that is inherent in a marriage is sometimes if you and your wife are going at it, you're not really listening at her, you're waiting on her to breathe so you can get your point in. okay that's the kind of conversation America is having. Just breathe so I can tell you how wrong you are. And so how can we reconcile when we have lost reason?
2: I think some guys in my business do this, like they go, a person answers question number two. By saying, "Yeah, you're right. I just ate an entire pig for breakfast," and they go, uh, "Where do you stand on the weather today?"
0: Exactly. Said, Didn't
2: you just hear that answer?
0: <laughs> right, right. We're not listening. <laughs> now, of
2: all the people that you might not think is a genius of this was Ed McMahon, and he once said, "The best question comes out of the last answer." I thought if you're listening to the other person. That's where you're going to get your best question.
0: I thought that I could not effectively pastor people that I couldn't hear. I'm getting ready to do a, a, a talk show. The T.D. Jake Show, I can't talk to people I don't know. I'm writing a book. I can't write to people if I don't understand what they care mm-hmm. about. So this was my initiative to listen at the heartbeat of America, not just the people who look like me or vote like me or dress like me. America is an amalgamation of huge diversity, mm-hmm. unlike we have ever had before, and we're still having old conversation. We're still talking in terms of black and white. Isn't that amazing? When we have all this convergence of all types of people groups today, we have not solved our grandfather's problems. At the speed in which we are really coming together and becoming a melting pot, it will be my great-great-grandchildren before they really see Dr. King's dream fully realized. That's too slow. As we banter about immigration and we deal with terrorism and some of the other things that are in these numbers that are complex and powerful issues of the day, we've got the ghost of our parents' problems coming back to haunt another generation. Uh, That's scary. You think so? Yeah. I think it's very scary.
2: Okay. You know, I think Trump listens. And I think his campaign has been brilliant exploitation of the white working class. And he knows their fears and he hears them. He listens with his tongue. He gets out to the audience like a nightclub comic. And he, he am I right? Am I right? He looks at the face. Am I right? <laughs> and he, and he, he's just like good, not good nightclub comics. They work it out, they work it till they get it, till they hear it. And it may not be the whole country, certainly, he's talking to. But he's got a, a group, a clan of people that listen to him. And he listened to them back
0: and forth. It, this guy's not going away. But you know something. It, <laughs> it, not it, it, I'm not a political guy. I realize I'm in Washington. I'm not a political guy. But well, here's your chance. But, ah! but, but here's my chance, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know what I wonder? I wonder if our elected officials, if Congress, if all of the people that do business as usual in Washington were listening to the people would Trump get a chance to listen to them? That's
2: my answer, that's you just, I agree completely. If you don't talk uh, to certain people, they're gonna notice it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and eventually they're gonna go with whoever listens. And I think the takeaway from us is not what is Bernie doing wrong or Trump doing wrong or Clinton doing wrong. We have to assume responsibility. Who have we not listened to that in desperation they have cried in the ears of somebody that we think may be detrimental? Yeah. That not listening is dangerous for leaders.
2: By the way, is there a three point play question here or not? <laughs> That's become the biggest argument list for you. Is, is this good or bad? Yeah. we we'll, we'll deal with that later. Right. Uh, here's a great number 64% prefer to start their own business. This blew me away. We talked in the back room about this. I didn't know that many Americans thought of themselves as business creators, business starters. I grew up in a family. We all look for jobs. I mean, we were all workers. We just look for jobs. My father worked for the city. I guess one brother started a mortgage business, but generally, we're not entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And I, and I didn't think that that many Americans were that entrepreneurial.
0: Well, you know, the funny thing about that is you, as you said earlier, you're white, yeah, and you can grow up thinking that you are desirable and that you will be hired. I'm black, and I grew up with a father who was entrepreneurial because he grew up with the assumption that he would not be hired. So African-Americans are more likely to go into business more readily than any other people group. The problem is we go out of business more readily than any other people group. Okay? When you look at Latinos— You're talking
2: talking like neighborhood— Like starting a business, starting a bodega, starting a a dry cleaning system, drying
0: it. Yeah, yeah, a mop in a bucket, a lawnmower, a hairdresser, a beautician. And I'm getting ahead of myself. When you get to the maladies of the criminal justice system and what it has done to minorities in terms of not being hireable, sometimes you don't get the option you don't get the option to wonder, can I be hired because that little line on the application is going to exempt you from being hired and by the way, you may not be able to rent a place to stay. When you look at all of these numbers... Is this
2: redlining are you talking about redlining are you talking
0: about... I'm talking about you cannot find an application that doesn't ask you, have you ever been arrested or have you created a felony? You have not an application for a job or a house. I'm talking about that if you got into trouble, your father knew somebody who he could call to get you out of trouble and now went to jail. And so both of us got into the same mischief, but we can't get out that's what I'm talking about and the final thing I'm talking about we are entrepreneurial because we have to be so a second win the book that I'm writing dealing with entrepreneurship and a second chance of reimagining yourself is not just that you have a proclivity to be entrepreneurial it is that if you are going to survive as a minority in America and you cannot get a job you have to create a job
2: yeah let me ask you about that. We're in the criminal justice system. And uh, by the way, wasn't, I think it was a great thing that Governor McAuliffe down in Virginia did something that is absolutely didn't hurt anybody, no, but so. helped a lot of people by saying it's no longer, we're not going back to the old British common law or whatever it is. You get out of prison. You've served your time. You've dealt with everything you had to deal with, parole and everything. And uh, you can vote. Right. What's the harm in that? In my view, is nobody's going to go out and could, now that I know I won't lose my vote. I'm going to go out <laughs> out of the bank. I don't yeah. think there's anybody like that. So yeah. there's an like incentive. It's just a nice way to reintroduce people back into a real world. That they're part of again, and they—I think voting would be a way of rehabilitating a guy.
0: You know, you are absolutely right. And the other thing that really bothers me about it is that person who has been arrested gets a job, and they have to pay taxes, and they have taxation without representation, which is the very thing we fought for to found this country in the first place. How can we allow this you're large right. you, segment of okay, people? Okay, you're
2: back home, pay your taxes, but you can't vote.
0: Yeah, you, to I pay taxes, I don't but know why, I know why the Republicans
2: are fighting this because they think there's some demographic loss they're going to suffer there. But,
0: but there. Yeah. Well, 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 well. okay, somebody play the organ, let me hope for a minute. Uh, You you know, the reality is that demographic may not be uh, leaning toward their numbers in the way that they need to be, but let's give credit where credit is due. There are some Republican voices that are in total agreement with Reformation Rand in this area, Rand Paul and some others, and there is an opportunity for us to get across the board consensus and agreement to move this forward in stages. Again, it might not be as quick as we'd like to see, but the numbers show that it is a huge issue in America that is not being dealt with appropriately.
2: Let's talk about criminal justice. First of all, the war on drugs a weird kind of metaphor. I'm not sure how it's being fought, but... You know, there's so many different points of view on drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the whole decriminalization and legalization out in Colorado. That's, to me, that's a, a laboratory. I want to know the result. I'm not a big, you know, make it all legal stuff. But uh, we have young kids, 18, 19 years old. That's the only. My brother once said to me, he's a politician. He said to a lot of young kids, that's the only business model out there, going out and selling, right, right, going out and selling right. in your turf.
0: Unfortunately, you get killed
2: because mm-hmm. you're fighting over every block. What do you think of it? Do you think
0: it's worth? 85% are losing the war on drugs? 85% say that they, we're losing the war on drugs, which is really cold language because the war on drugs is only a war when it comes in black and brown. See, drug problems are an illness when it comes in white. Yeah.
3: When it comes, old comes in. Cocaine? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, need you need a treatment center, I need a prison. <laughs> and that's amazing. <laughs> So,
2: okay. Warm. Why do you think that powder cocaine thing was very hot in, like, the late 70s, early 70s? I know a lot of guys got involved in this. Well, we went... All, they all learned their lesson. They went into rehab or whatever, and they got in trouble for it, and then it just died. they like, no, were talking about middle class. Mm-hmm. And middle class, it just sort of went away. I'm always curious why everybody... Oh, this stuff was so great. This is the greatest thing I ever discovered in my life. You know, Booster, the guy's doing in sales, right, right for sales, you know, <laughs>
0: right.
2: uh, and, and all right in politics here in the city, by the way. Got, politicians got involved with it. And then all of a sudden they got the word, you know, a lot faster than they got it with cigarettes. This isn't good for you. Right. And I just want to, I guess when you're desperate, you don't get that word because you got other things in your life just driving you down. Well,
0: yeah, I don't really know, but I do know this. I do know that the language that we use, like war on drugs and things like that also has code language with ramifications. I do know that we have a drug problem on uh, prescription drugs in this country that's completely out yeah, of control, yeah. both being sold on the street and going in the suburbs. Blacks, whites, and browns are all dealing with this. Cheap. But the war on drugs always comes, that terminology is never in the suburbs.
2: Well, it's cutting out there. I, I tell you, I think. So we're having
0: a war on the inner yeah, city.
2: I think the drug problem in the white parts of Philadelphia, uh, Northeast Philly, that's penetrated pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's. There's no color line there anymore about drugs. Anyway.
0: What about this? But, 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 let's hold up there a minute. We can't go further with that. Because the reality of the matter is drugs are not just in poor neighborhoods, identifiable neighborhoods. Drugs are in CEOs' offices. They're right, everywhere. Sure. They're all over America. If you have enough money, you can dress your addiction up. And as long as you dress your addiction up, we're not at war with you. It's just when you have the naked problem that we attack you.
2: Uh, also, I think it's a lot. I bet it has <laughs> to do with being able to use the drugs at home. Absolutely. If you're out in the street and you get picked up, the cop finds it on you. He's got you for possession. Well,
0: it's You're like the it's, it's like so being an alcoholic. Sure. There's a difference between having a chilled glass of a problem and drinking it from a brown bag, but it's the same problem. It's how you finesse it, how America sees it, and, and that's what these numbers are showing us.
2: I discovered that 22 years ago when I stopped drinking. see what I mean? I realized there's no difference between me and the guy buying the uh, the night train at the gas station. When yeah. I bought my first bottle of night train, I said, am I wanting a bottle of wine that bad? I'm buying that stuff? Right. Syrupy stuff? Right. Oh, God. Don't buy your wine at the gas station. Anyway. Uh,
0: Congratulations they,
2: on they, your they recovery. Discover. <laughs> <laughs> you discover the problem. It's you. Anyway. Let's talk about this too harsh for minor drug offense. That's what you hear a lot about because of these Rockefeller laws and stuff that people have been put away, uh, mandatory sentencing, that whole
0: thing. Well, I mean, I think that it is a problem. It's really, really sad today that prisons have become big business in America. Couldn't
2: you mean get- judges are... Their verdicts and their sentencing are favoring their buddies who run prisons. That's, that's only, a rare that, case.
0: That's only part of it. That's only part of it. I mean, the prison industry—the building, the bedding, the, the covering, unions, the wardrobes—you or, or can get—they're on the stock exchange. Yeah. Okay. It is big business. It is big business to incarcerate minor offenses amongst people who are being represented by court-appointed attorneys, and it has become big business. And you cannot have true justice where money is at the bench. Yeah. So, so today I think we really need to take a real harsh look. We certainly have people in America that need to be locked up in jail for the crimes that they have committed. But some of the people that we have in jail made mistakes, and the people who sent them to jail made also. Mm. <laughs> but they had so the money the, to get here's out. Here's
2: the one that goes on every day, and I don't know if this concerns policing. It probably does. It probably involves the, everything we talk about. And that's that 66 percent, that's two-thirds, believe the justice system is headed in the wrong direction. 47 percent say the system is worse than in their parents' generation. Now, I used to hear stories about the police officer who would beat up the black uh, suspects in the car. First punishment was in the car, in the SWAT car. Mm-hmm. I grew up hearing about that. And uh, so I don't know how it's getting worse than that, although we see the case in Baltimore, which is something like that, you know, on his face. Do you think the cops are tougher on people they pick up now that they were? 40, 50 years ago,
0: tougher than that? <laughs> no, I think that we have uh, little phones that report what's been going on for years. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know whether it's any worse. I just think that the voice and the crowd of the people has reached a point. What I laughed at is that you grew up hearing about it. I grew up. My running. father
2: worked in the court system. Yeah,
0: but I grew up running from it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> there's a difference between hearing about it and running from it. There, there's a vast difference, and I think your statement really identifies these numbers. And yes, there is a problem, but let's not minimize this to what we see happening on the sidewalk, because whether it be your son or mine, if they do something inappropriate on the sidewalk, I don't mind them being arrested if they did something wrong. I just don't want them to be tried on the sidewalk. And the problem in America is that they're tried on the sidewalk, and if they survive being tried on the sidewalk, they go to a criminal justice system that is skewed against them, depending upon who's running for office and when and how good it looks to be tough on crime in order to get elected. Uh, And then they get into a system who's making big money by building bigger prisons, and then we are investing in the industry through the stock market, and they cannot vote. And the worst part about it is the reason we started our Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative and our director is here today, we've seen 10,000 inmates come through the program. We can tell you today it is cheaper to rehabilitate than it is to yeah, incarcerate, is. Well, and yet we keep on doing it.
2: you 81 percent, four out of five, say the system's not successfully rehabilitating. You know, I got involved briefly in a program called The Dismiss, It's Catholic, the, you know, the, the good thief. From the cross, and you bring these guys in. And have spent like the, they're like the Morgan Freeman character, mm-hmm. James Whitmore character in Shawshank. They've been in forever. They came. Their crime was so many years ago, and it was usually one crime, mm-hmm. horrendous crime, murder. But it was one time. I meet this guy. Uh, he's making breakfast for us because it's a halfway house. It's a place to get people out. <laughs> Back home, and he got to act sort of well, sort of middle classy. You know, all you have to do is spend three months in this place and behave yourself, you get out. Mm-hmm. But you have to behave for the whole three months. You can't be drinking or anything crazy. Right. So this funny story is this guy, they call him Pop. Of course, you have to go a name Pop. There's always a Pop. And Pop's making breakfast, and he says, "What do you want?" And I said, "I'll just have cereal afterwards." Because he said, "So what's Pop in for?" And this guy, running, Terry Horgan said to me, "He murdered his wife. He poisoned her." <laughs> and I'm going, He's making breakfast, huh? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it so, turned out, though, it was one of those crimes of the century where the guy would have never done it. His, he was over fighting in World War II, right? And he was in that Anzio, mm-hmm. you know, that horrible bad thing they did in Italy. We didn't write it wasn't a smart campaign, and all the guys got killed and beat up, and he survived. He comes back and realized his wife has been messing around, mm-hmm. so he he killed her. All right, so he would. This is a weird situation. A particular traumatic situation for him, especially for her. But,
0: <laughs> yeah, especially uh, for her. But
2: so he's in like 40, 50 years later. He's still in prison, right? This is World War II, so that's the kind of rehabilitation. I think you know the classic was of course Morgan Freeman and James Whitmore in that movie, where these guys are not going to kill anybody again. But so I think we got to be looking. You're the expert on well, I mean, well, rehabilitation to we, we have to look is for a ways safe to, thing to be doing in a lot of cases.
0: We have to look for ways to rehabilitate people. We have to find ways to do it. And when the truth of the matter is, it is more cost effective to do it than to not do it, when the truth of the matter is, we're losing a brain trust of intellectual power and opportunities to rehabilitate people and create a workforce that moves our country forward, that builds walls and builds, ooh, walls is a bad term to use in Washington, <laughs> use, that builds bridges that builds bridges and repairs damages we we need a lot of the people that we have incarcerated we need them out we need them in school we need them building businesses we need america thriving again as a country and we cannot do that if we're going to penalize people for being broke at the time we arrested them
2: you know, i just wonder why did we lose the memory of the great depression and the new deal and the whole idea of fdr is put people to work get everybody working ccc whatever Anyway, let's go back. This last question I think is, uh, we've already talked about. It. Three and five in the poll believe society has a responsibility in helping ex-offenders after prison. I
0: think we uh, Yeah, it. so there's good people will for it. Again, but is there political will where there's people will? The people understand we have a responsibility to do that, but the policies in place don't always reflect that. And then let's go and admit our own hypocrisy. The same people who say we have a responsibility to work with those people don't want to live beside them. Don't so want to rent to I think to them. We've
2: covered criminal justice. Don't want to
0: create a job for them. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. So we have the will to do it, but are we going to do it?
2: Why don't I just let you throw all these three numbers at you because we've already talked about it. Okay. Does the American criminal justice system treat all races equally? Well, among whites who are surveyed, 43% favors whites, 45% treats everyone equally. It's interesting. I think the whites sort of get it there. Mm-hmm. you know, There's a real division there. African Americans, 77%, say it favors the whites. Only 18% say it's equal. Hispanics, again, favors whites. 43, 46, treats them another conflicted community. But the African American community has a view on this.
0: Yeah, uh, a huge view. But but in fairness to the white community, to ask the white community is the justice system fair to a people group that they are not. How can you get a good answer from a people group that they are not? The reason the number escalates so high with the African Americans, because now you're preaching to the choir. You're talking to the people who are really being affected by it. You know what this shows me more than racial division? It shows me that we don't talk to each other, that we don't know each other, that we write the books we read. And as long as you write the books you read, your truth will always be yeah. skewed.
2: But it's also back to your thing about tribal thinking and- uh, Absolutely. I mean, the OJ case, everybody put their hand up back and forth, I mean, I don't think it's as divided as it seems at the time. No, no. But I, at the time, everybody went to general quarters, they went to their battle stations, and I think today, people looking at- it,
0: Divided doesn't always mean hated. Yeah. I think that sometimes we hear the word divided and we think that if somebody doesn't understand us, they hate us, when in reality, that you can misunderstand me, it doesn't mean that you hate me. You can have an ideology about me, and some of these numbers just says that the white community doesn't know what it's like to be black, or the black community can't imagine what it's like to be white, or the brown community. But while we don't know these things about each other, the ones who are on the bottom bleed for the lack of that knowledge. And I think we have to do what we're doing here today is having conversations. We launched uh, intentionally a conversation with America. And I think that you have to intentionally go outside of your people group and not just the color, your profession. Journalists, no well, journalists. Doctors, no doctors, well, lawyers, talk, no We lawyers. talk to
2: each other. You're right. And by the way, I've never, you're talking about Revelation, a number of guys <laughs> who I work with, men, trying to get a cab. Mm-hmm. And that's not just white cab drivers or third world cab drivers working here or moving here. It's just they don't want to take you to certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had to stand for a guy down at LaGuardia. He says, can you stand in front of me? This guy's well-dressed. It's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And he's standing while these cabs are buzzing by us. And he said, would you please stand first in line so I get this, because we did a bait and switch. That's the only way to do it. And all these guys in a much more horrific situation I work with, not a whole lot of guys, but enough for me to learn the lesson. This driving while black thing, Mm -hmm. it's real. (laughs) Hello. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) No, it's like, you know, you're not not driving fast. You don't have a sports car. You're not doing anything. You don't have, you know, racing stripes on. You're just driving while black. Right.
0: well, we didn't know that. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell How you. How would we know
2: it unless somebody we knew told us? I mean, it's because you hear somebody saying it, you don't even know. How do you know that guy didn't wasn't speeding or
0: my son? Cutting in my lanes? son got pulled over by a police officer, called the house late at night, and you always have kids that are more dramatic than others. This is the dramatic one, and he's. <laughs> He's flipping out on the phone, you know, they pull me over that and they pull me over there. I can hear the police officer saying, hang up the phone. And I'm saying to him, be quiet, calm yourself down, hang up the phone, do exactly what he says. As I gave out these instructions, you must understand why I gave them out. Because I'm afraid that the police officer is going to kill my son. Hmm. That's a fear that is a normative in our community that you don't have to deal with. Yeah. I am afraid.
2: When did that start?
0: No, the fear of being. No, the fear. Of, yes, okay. the reason. The reason the black people in the room are laughing right. at you is because it has always been. It was from. It has always been. The fear of being shot. Okay. okay. Being let, let, me show, let me show. No, you how ridiculous. No no, no, no. You no, no. no, Let me t- let me show you how ridiculous your question is. It's not ridiculous. Do you, you yes, it shot. is. I'm going to show you why. Give me a minute, and I'll show you why. You have to listen to this. Imagine the KKK is coming to your house. Can you call the police? Imagine that they're getting ready to hang you. Let's go back in okay, history. Okay, okay, okay. Could we call the police? Have we ever been able to call 911 and sit out there like y'all do, fixing cookies for them to come? No, because depending on what the issue was, we have never felt safe with police. So you say, when did it start? The reason we laugh okay. is that we don't have a clue what it's like so to feel the a, way a you do. A police
2: officer, a state trooper on the New Jersey Times, shooting somebody right out there on the street has is, is always been present
0: has always been a reality we have always been scared of okay. the police and and yet yet we recognize in a contemporary society that the preponderance the majority of police officers are great people doing their job but it is an issue in the back of our mind predisposed from our history and contemporary life that it is possible that my son could have gotten shot by the police officer and I was relieved that he was alive when the night was over in a way that you would not have to think about with your son as readily. Now, that is a problem, but that is not the problem that I'm talking about with criminal justice. I'm talking about not only can you not find justice on the sidewalk, we're not finding justice in the courtroom, and the independent numbers, independent of black people and brown people, reflect this, and yet we ignore the data and allow the system to exist because people are profiting by the problem. Okay. Let the church say amen.
2: You <laughs> he right, everybody? Anybody disagree? Let's go to national security, and uh, this is a, an area I think we didn't all worry about growing up, yeah. that we were gonna be attacked by terrorists, and I love these fascinating results here. Let me just run through all the numbers because we're running out of time. I want somebody to do some Q&A in here. 73% three quarters say the United States is not safe from terrorists. Well, that's just technical, of course. We're, 52% security is on the wrong track. 53% believe we're safer than we were on 9-11. 45% say attacks made them more suspicious toward other people. 58% say government should take stronger steps, but not if it would violate civil liberties. That's an interesting conflict we all have. Of those who think America is safe from terrorists, most are younger. of 18- to 24-year-olds feel safer. People over 65, only 9 out of 100, feel (laughs) safe. That may be, well, we'll get that subjectivity there. Because they're no more dangerous than the other people are. So it's a different mindset. Mm -hmm. Most of the communities of color, this is interesting, 23% of whites say, this is why I worry about polls of any kind, say that they feel safe. Now, they say it. 39% or 2 out of 5 of African Americans say they're safe, they feel safe. And 41% same roughly percentage of Hispanics. So here's the interesting subjectivity here. Whites and blacks are probably equally vulnerable to terrorism just because these are big rooms you're blown up in or buildings you're blown up in or whatever. Why would whites say they're more vulnerable to attack than people of color?
0: You know. uh... Is it just
2: politics? They want to talk terrorism. They love terrorism as a political topic. So more people of color feel safer.
0: That's, that's what, I, what, what well, I'm trying that about? to say. I think because we, we feel safer from terrorism, but we feel less safe with other things. You know, there's black-on-black black crime. It's not the immediate danger. We don't have that so much in our community, though it is certainly in South Carolina. It was a wake-up call. And in reality, there are other dangers that we have to worry about that are more apt to happen to us than yeah. terrorist attack. But and if, we live a constant state of terror over, is my son going to get killed? Is, is there going to be black-on-black black crime? You know, is somebody going to die of AIDS? We have a lot of other terroristic uh, issues to confront being black in America.
2: That's about, i bet that's geographical, too, because if you live in the deep south, Absolutely. You're pretty far from a big city, you don't think you're going to get hit. You wouldn't actually expect that. Until you do. <laughs> you know,
0: until you do. The thing that I think is most disturbing that the numbers show is that there is a general a dis-ease in the country. That's for sure. and, and what the terrorists are teaching us is that they're breaking all the rules from California to Florida, from Florida to South Carolina, from a church to a gay bar. And while people make crazy statements, the reality is there's no predictability about what a terrorist looks like or where they're going to strike or what they're going to do next. And the 45 percent of people who are saying it's made me more suspicious of other people, I thought, good. We need to be suspicious. We need to look. We need to have our eyes wide open. What is happening in this country is really scary. And for us to divide at a time that we need to unite is even more frightening. Because now more than ever, we need to look at everybody. Yeah. And I think it's dangerous when we describe a terrorist and say a terrorist looks like this or they only come to this neighborhoods. Security at a time of vulnerability is as dangerous as terrorism.
2: Let's take some questions. By the way, Congressman Steve Cohen's here for the state of Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you. Um, April's going to take over. Are you going to do this or how are you going to do it? I'm
1: going to raise your hands if you have questions. Take over. Okay, the, the congressman, would you like to say something first? We have Congressman Steve Cohen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I relate to a lot of these issues because I deal with them. I think the whole idea of taking back our country is what the answer is to a lot of these issues. And the reasons whites don't feel safe is because they think their country was taken from them and some of their misconceptions is because of the election of Barack Obama, and people have played on that, Donald Trump in particular, with the birther issue, and they've seen more African Americans get politically powerful positions, and they've been told their country is being taken from them by African Americans, gays, other groups that have been disenfranchised. And I think there's a big problem, and I think we're going to unfortunately see it in this election, the great divide that we have. I did a post about Orlando on my Facebook, and I had the most unbelievable response. And so many whites were commenting that they have their guns to protect them from the government. There are whites that think the government's going to come get them. African Americans don't think that. And so I think that's one of the reasons they don't feel safe. They don't feel safe because they think the government's going to come get them. And so there are problems that have been since slavery, since Jim Crow, since Emmett Till, that we still have to fight. And I think the next president's going to do a lot that the setting's been made by President Obama that possibly she can improve upon
1: (laughs) And for everyone who's gonna ask a question to make them succinct and fast.
3: Great, thank you, good morning.
0: Gentlemen, great hearing you. I wanted to comment on the criminal justice and the substance abuse portion of it. I have a substance abuse program in Baltimore City that I own, state certified facility, and I deal with the reentering citizen that did 30 to 51 years the criminal
3: justice system fails these gentlemen because they don't prepare them for reentry. So when we do release them out into society, they come out, it's like a dog let out of a cage or you have a Rip Van Winkle that came out of prison after 30 to 50 years. Everything's changed. So even when it comes to substance abuse, what America really doesn't know is that there's more mental health concerns there prior to housing concerns. So until those things are addressed, the substance abuse treatment would never work.
1: Thank you. Yep. Okay, right
3: here. Can you just touch on the um, cost of incarceration versus rehabilitation? Because studies are showing that it's like $52 a day in Texas to incarcerate versus $4 a day to rehabilitate.
0: Well, you know, unfortunately, everything always comes back to money. I live in a world where it ought to come back to right. But in reality, people don't do things because they're right. They do things because they're profitable, which makes this problem all the more confusing because it would be more profitable to get into the business of rehabilitation. Almost five times, what, 500 percent difference to rehabilitate than it would be to incarcerate. And by the way, in the process of rehabilitating, we could create jobs for both the person who is training them and create jobs for the person who now has a skill to offer when they get out. I don't know why we're not doing it. Uh, We're wasting money that we need to put in other places, maybe in putting infrastructure in Flint, (laughs) maybe in putting infrastructure in the erosion of our cities everywhere could be subsidized by the money that we're losing in a criminal justice system that is failing not just people of color, it's failing all of America, because all of America is investing in this defunct system.
1: You know, everyone, we want you to keep following this because I know this was a success and it's going to happen again. <laughs> Give yourselves a big round of applause.
0: April, can, can I say just one thing sure, before sir. you yes. close? I know you're going to close out. We didn't have to do conversations with America. This is the second installment that we have made in an ongoing attempt to get out of our bubble and talk to people who may not come to us, who may not eat with us, who may not dress like us. We didn't do it because of it being profitable or marketable or anything like that. We did it because we wanted to hear the heartbeat of America. And I want to challenge you when you leave this place to force a conversation with somebody you normally would not talk to. Not just a quick hi or how you doing, to purposely go out of your way to get to know somebody who might make you a little bit uncomfortable, who wouldn't normally be in your circle. Because that's somebody's child, that's somebody's daughter, as we begin to elicit these conversations with America, rather than allowing respectfully newscasters to tell us about people that we walk past every day, why would you wait till the 6 o'clock news to hear about somebody you rode the subway with? Just talk to me. Talk to me. I want to challenge you to have a conversation with America, because America, Is crying because it cannot be heard, and it cannot be heard often by the very people they are paying to listen. So take up the Conversations with America and have your own.
1: Everyone, thank you. I thank you for for the knowledge. I thank you for the poll. I thank all of you for coming and Conversations with America. And please, tonight, tomorrow, every night, hardball. (laughs)
0: God bless you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to The Weekly Show and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music app.